we are up to Daniel chapter 3 in our study through this book. So uh, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 3 and uh, we shall see what uh, we can glean this morning from God's Word. There's some wonderful, wonderful words of encouragement uh, found within this chapter for us. Uh, and I'm sure that it will be a blessing, certainly with some of the trials and the situations uh, many are going through right now. Just to remind you, just to set the scene before we move into this, Daniel and his friends uh, were taken captive in 606 BC by Nebuchadnezzar, who came after defeating the Egyptians up in uh, Karshemesh, came back down towards Jerusalem and uh, defeated this nation, um, took them into captivity, left the nation, though, effectively in place, just took the best of the the Jewish nobility into Babylon, but left the, the king uh, re- ruling and reigning, uh, left the nation pretty much intact. There were two subsequent sieges, one in 597 and then another one in 587 BC. Of course, we count down as we are looking years before Christ. But Daniel was just around about 14 years old from what we understand, taken away from his family, from everything he'd known, everything he'd loved, and brought into this pagan environment and offered effectively the best of Babylon. But if you remember, Daniel purposed in his heart not to be defiled. And we take it, although it's not explicitly stated, that his friends were uh, in exactly the same mindset as Daniel. Uh, They didn't want to be defiled by anything that could be offered by Babylon. Uh, They wanted to stay true to their God. Uh, And we said the interesting thing we note is with the the usage of names. Now, of course, as they go through this three-year training program, they are given Babylonian names, which are to glorify the Babylonian gods. Daniel only ever refers to these friends of his by their Babylonian names when it's in the context that they're being spoken to by the Babylonians. Uh, But the rest of the time, Daniel refers to them by their real names, their Hebrew names, which, of course, glorify God. Uh, And I've made the point that when we speak about these individuals, Hananiah, Azariah and Mishael, we should use their Hebrew names because they're the names that glorify God, not Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, uh, which is the names often that we attribute to these individuals. They're the Babylonian names that don't glorify God. So um, now at the end of the three years, we're told this training program, Daniel and his friends were found 10 times better than their uh, compatriots, the, these other individuals that no doubt have been taken from other nations, not just Israel, Babylon was uh, subduing the nations around about. Um, so these individuals taken from the best that the other nations had as well, they're all put into this training program, but Daniel and his friends just stand out from the crowd. Of course, the Lord blessing them and prospering them, giving them wisdom, just as we, we saw back in Genesis with Joseph, how the Lord had blessed and prospered him simply because of his love for God and his faithfulness. And the Lord saw to it that Joseph was raised to that position of power and authority. Well, Daniel and his three friends, in exactly the same situation, raised this position of authority. Now, we found in chapter 2 that the king had a dream uh, and that nobody could interpret. And seemingly the king can't even remember or certainly won't repeat it. Uh, and says that anybody that can can uh, interpret the dream will be rewarded. But if they can't, then every one of them, all these wise men, these magi, these Chaldeans and so on, they'll all be put to death. Well, Daniel, who's still in that last year of his training at the time, hears about this. And so he goes and positions the king and asks this individual, Arioch, who's in charge of all this, to uh, speak to the king to give him more time. So Daniel does that. The interesting thing is that Daniel then goes home and says to his friends, hey, guys, have you heard about this problem that the king is going to kill everybody? Well, I've told him that we are going to tell him the interpretation. And you kind of get that feeling that Daniel's friends would have just looked at Daniel and said, you did what? You know, suddenly they're all dropped in it together. But of course, they love God. They seek God. They pray and ask God. And of course, I'm sure that evening there was a real prayer meeting. You can just imagine the conversation. You know, guess what, guys? The king's had a dream. No one could figure it out. So he's going to kill all of us. But I told him that me and my buddies will be able to work it out. How cool is that? And you kind of get that feeling that Daniel was genuinely excited about this opportunity. He saw Romans 8.28, that God was working all things together for good. But you can again imagine that reply uh, from his friends. And again, something tells me that Daniel didn't need to encourage them to pray hard that evening. But they did pray. 
Uh, and of course, God answers them, gives Daniel that interpretation. And Daniel goes back, gives it to the king. And of course, this, this vision of these kingdoms, these subsequent kingdoms that would follow on from Babylon. Now, that's really important because it sets the scene for this chapter that we're going to study this morning. Now, just before we go into the text, if we look at the chronology of the book of Daniel, you can see the approximate years there. 606 is a pretty much fixed date uh, that we know of. Um, and uh, some of the other dates there we know from history. We've got external verifications. But these are roughly when we think the events took place. Now, the interesting thing is that where we are this morning, this image that Nebuchadnezzar sets up, was actually around about 587 BC. Now, I only spotted this last night as I was studying this, and it really kind of just, just one of those exciting light bulb moments. Now, this isn't doctrine, this isn't fact, but it's very provocative and very interesting when this occurred. If I show you just the, the timeline, and hopefully you can see that large enough on your screens. Uh, if you can see there, we're talking around this period here, 587 BC. Now, as you can see, if that is indeed when chapter 3 occurs, it would be at the same time, or roughly the same year, that the third siege of Jerusalem takes place. Now, some scholars will place chapter 3 a little bit earlier than this. Um, some of them have suggested it could have been round about 596, which would be just after the second siege. But the thing I think is really fascinating is when we read through this chapter and we look at the outcome, we see that King Nebuchadnezzar starts to have a change of heart. He's already had that chapter two experience where he realized that God can interpret dreams. Now he's going to see that God can do the miraculous and incredible things. It's not quite enough to bring him to that place of repentance and humility. That will come and we'll read about that, Lord willing, next week in chapter four. But what I find interesting is I think it's unlikely that Nebuchadnezzar would have launched that attack against Jerusalem and the God of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem after the events we read about in this chapter. In other words, what I'm saying is I think that it was actually the siege of Jerusalem in 587 BC, which leads to these events. Why so? Well, let's just consider this for a second. If this event occurred in 587 BC, Daniel and his friends would have been around about 33 years old. Now, just that's interesting for a start, because we often think of them as still kind of young men. And I suppose in a sense, you know, 33 is still young, um, but they were mature adults. That's the point I'm making. These weren't just kids that were just being a bit of bravado here. They were mature. This was a calculated thing. This wasn't just a random uh, knee-jerk reaction that we're going to see in response to the king's decree that is passed. Now, again, if I'm right, then this is the year that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. Zedekiah had been carried away captive to Babylon and Israel were effectively no longer. Nebuchadnezzar has put an end to Israel. There is no king in Israel from this point. Now, the interesting thing is, and Nebuchadnezzar would have been very well aware of this, that even the mighty Assyrian Empire had not been able to do this. In fact, the children this morning are studying in Second Kings the account of Hezekiah and the way that the Assyrian army was defeated and never got the opportunity to overthrow Judah, the southern kingdom. So Nebuchadnezzar now, who, if you remember in the study last week, is depicted as this head of gold, now does what the mightiest empire the world had known to that point could not do. And Nebuchadnezzar has now overthrown Jerusalem and he's destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, the temple of this God that he'd heard about back in chapter two and was clearly impressed with. But we're talking about somewhere in the region of 17 years later. So the 17 years has passed from chapter two as we go into chapter three. And, you know, time has a way of kind of erasing feeling, emotion and certainly fear on Nebuchadnezzar's part that maybe he held off destroying Jerusalem because of the events and the prophecy, the uh, interpretation of the deep dream that Daniel gives him in chapter two. But certainly at this point, Israel had become a thorn in his flesh effectively. They'd rebelled and can continue to rebel. And so finally he goes against them, destroys them in 587. And I think that on the way back, Nebuchadnezzar is thinking, you know, how can I celebrate this great victory? 
And in doing so, I think that this is the trigger for him setting up this image that we're going to see. You know, if you remember in the study last week, we saw this image that uh, he dreamed about. Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, and then we have Persia, the chest and arms of silver, uh, Greece with a belly and the thigh of uh, brass or bronze, and then Rome in those two phases, the, the Roman Empire as we know it, and then the future empire that is yet to come based upon the old Roman Empire is the final empire that Daniel interprets for Nebuchadnezzar. But you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar now having overthrown Jerusalem, having destroyed the temple of this great god, now thinking, well, hang on a minute, I'm this great king now, and why can't I be the entire gold statue? Why can't my kingdom be an eternal kingdom? Now, I just think it's quite interesting. I'll just share that with you. It's, it's, it's not doctrine, um, but it seems, it seems to fit all the details that we have. Now, there is a, uh, well, there was a revolt in 596, and some scholars think that that was the timing of this, this revolt that took place in Babylon seems to have set the stage for Nebuchadnezzar to want to cheer his spirits up somewhat. And there is a cuneiform tablet in the British Museum confirming that this revolt took place. And we also know Jeremiah records that Zedekiah had to make a visit to Babylon. So it could be that it took place earlier. But for the reasons I've just given, I think that it's more likely that this was all part and parcel of the same thing, that Jerusalem now is effectively laying in ruins. Nebuchadnezzar comes back to his land and wants to uh, do something to commemorate this. And I also think, and we'll talk about this, that the aides and the advisors around Nebuchadnezzar, the particularly the Chaldeans, were encouraging him to do this. And we'll talk about why that's the case. So let's jump into the text and see what we read. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So this statue is all gold. Now, some commentators think it was overlaid with gold. Um, Some think it could have been entirely gold. Certainly, we know that Babylon was full of gold. They had these huge tables, uh, altars that were made entirely out of gold that they found. Um, so it could well be that it was made of gold, uh, but even if it was overlaid with gold, this thing would have been stunning to look at. You've got to imagine this is in the uh, an area where obviously the sun shines a huge amount of the time, uh, and you can imagine the sun shining, glistening off this incredibly tall statue. We thought it was about 90 feet uh, is the the height of this now it's interesting if we look at this the, you know the scale of it you can see roughly the scale of a man to the statue uh, it would have been not quite as tall as uh, as Nelson's column but but certainly very very large archaeologists have actually unearthed a 45 foot square and 20 foot high base in the plain of Jura where this is and according to the bible takes place uh, which many believe could actually have been the base for this image, which would have been clearly visible from the walls of Babylon, uh, just towering over. Uh, and a furnace also has been discovered at the same site. So there's really good historical confirmation that this isn't just a children's story. This is an historical account that we have. Now, also seems to be interesting because the dimensions aren't typical of a statue of a human. And commentators have criticised this, or certainly sceptics have. But Nebuchadnezzar, had travelled down to Egypt. Uh, he'd been there, he'd conquered, and so on. And no doubt he would have seen things like the obelisks that they have in Egypt. Now, that was just a, a picture that I found. Um, but that's typically what the obelisks in Egypt would have looked like. You some have seen them, you've probably, some of you have been to London, you've seen Cleopatra's Needle and so on. Well, those things were erected by the Egyptians to kind of immortalise the pharaohs and their deities. And so that they would be remembered uh, off into eternity. Uh, Well, it could well be that Nebuchadnezzar, as I say, on his way back after defeating Jerusalem, having seen these obelisks and so on, decides that he wants to set one of these up for himself. And he wants to be this entire image of gold. As far as he's concerned, his kingdom is the biggest, the best, and nobody's going to overthrow him. He's done, as I already said, what the Assyrian Assyrian Empire couldn't do and overthrown Jerusalem and destroyed the temple of the, the God of Israel that they'd all heard so much about. So we read into verse two. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent to gather together the princes, the governors and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. So all of these people are invited now. So throughout the whole realm, they come. 
Daniel records this, he says, then, and this, we're going to get the same thing, you'll see, the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the councillors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, <laughs> there were about 100 provinces in Babylon at this time. That means anywhere from 200,000 to 300,000, it's been estimated, could well have been gathered on this plain at Dura, just outside the walls of Babylon itself, for this grand unveiling. And certainly it would have been an incredible sight. Um, the fact that we've got the same phrase repeated in verse 2 and 3 uh, commentators suggested that this is Daniel recording the event and actually copying out the decree that had been written by the king. Or, as I'm going to go on and, and share in a moment, I think maybe this wasn't just a decree that the king himself had written. But as we see in Daniel chapter 6, now, cast your mind forward, most of you are familiar with the account of Daniel in the lion's den. And you remember that in that situation, Darius or Darius, the king there, signs the decree forbidding anybody to pray to any other god and of course daniel does and, and we realize the whole thing was set up by these chaldeans uh, by these other individuals trying to trap daniel now i think the same thing may well have been going on here that yes the king builds his statue yes he wanted to do it but the whole idea and the suggestion here and certainly everybody bowing down to it may well have been a suggestion at the hand of the chaldeans you'll see that as we go through the text but just notice that exactly the same phrase is repeated in verse 2 and verse 3, which again leads commentators to suggest that what Daniel was doing was simply writing out the decree that had gone out. So Daniel was just recording these events for us. Verse 4, then a herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded, O people, nations and languages. So again, this is a broad spread of people from all over the realm that have now been brought to Babylon for this purpose that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, flute, harp sackbut, I'm not sure what that instrument is, but uh, anyway, uh, sultry, uh, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, that you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, has set up. So this is the, the decree, the, the cry that goes out. And verse 6 says, And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, uh, shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace now we do know historically that burning to death was common the common mode of execution in babylon people that argue that daniel was written much later miss some of these details that if daniel was indeed a later fabrication they would have missed some of this stuff um, because the other cultures the assyrians and certainly the greeks and the romans didn't use this as a way of execution in fact the uh, the Persians and so on, uh, they had this kind of respect of fire. They saw it as some sort of deity in itself. And so uh, they wouldn't have yet used fire to kill people. Nevertheless, uh, that's what we have recorded here, which is true to the historical information that we know. So therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbuck, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. This must have been quite a staggering scene to behold. Multitudes of people all gathered together, and suddenly there's this blast of music, all making this noise at the same time, and everybody bowing down towards this statue. Except, of course, for three Hebrew men who stood bolt upright when everyone else was bowing down. Now, we've got, often got pictures, and I'm sure in, in uh, children's Bibles you've seen pictures of a crowd of people and three individuals standing up in the crowd. You've got to remember that Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael were actually on the king's staff. They were uh, his counsellors. And so they weren't just people in the crowd. They were standing probably on the platform or somewhere up front in a position of authority. And so they would have been very visible as they defied the king and didn't bow down. Now, a question that we're going to return to is, where was Daniel? Why didn't Daniel appear in this scene? Where was he? Uh, we'll come back to that at the end. I'll leave that to ponder for now. Um, but um, certainly music has been used to accompany idolatry through the decades. They've been close companions. 
Satan appears to have been the worship leader in heaven, uh, for want of a a better expression. In Ezekiel 28, uh, verses 13 to 15, there's an allusion to that. Uh, And it was seen that he has a great understanding of how powerful and manipulative music can be. Now, let's just make it very clear. Music is a gift from God. It's a wonderful gift from God. And of course, it's intended to accompany our praise to him. You can see that throughout the book of Psalms, the suggestions and uh, admonitions to use music and stringed instruments and so on to worship and praise God. Of course, music is not worship. Worship is an attitude of our heart. Music is simply an expression that we can use to worship God. But of course, as with all things, music can be used for evil. And you've just got to consider the lust, the violence and the immorality Uh, that is communicated to young people through music today. And as parents, uh, you need to be extremely careful what you allow your children to listen to. There are some very ungodly influences that are not helpful. And they put all sorts of ideas and thoughts uh, in children's minds. And we need to be very careful. Satan certainly uses music now. Music itself is a vehicle. Uh, It can equally be used for good. It can be used for God. It can be used for witnessing, for evangelism, for encouragement, for blessing in so many ways. Um, But certainly in this instance, music was used to stir the people and get them to come to this place where they were bow down. Uh, This kind of uh, just inciting and uh, very emotive uh, feeling as this music was playing. Of course, Satan is always trying to distort what God has made good. From what we know of history, the Babylonians had a love for music. In fact, uh, we read in Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yeah, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps on the willows in the midst thereof. And notice what it says, for there they, that's the Babylonians, that carried us away captive, required of us a song. All right. So what we find is that they required a song. They wanted them to sing and they wait. They, they wasted us, required of us mirth, saying, notice, sing us one of the songs of Zion. So the Babylonians loved their music and they wanted the uh, captives that have been carried away into Babylon to come and sing to them. Wherefore, uh, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Now that's, of course, the, the statement that you want to do, uh, want to say to impress the king. Uh, and, of course, the king's mindset seems to have been exactly that, that he was setting up this golden image that he was saying, my empire, my kingdom will not end. It will not be overthrown, as the vision in chapter 2 had suggested. But notice again, verse 8, what it says. Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans... All right, notice this because these are the ones that are antagonistic, particularly towards Daniel. They were the uh, the homegrown talent, if you like. They were the counselors that the king had uh, got on staff that were from Babylon. They lived in that area. They were the people from Babylon. And of course, the king now brings people like Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael in, and he brings them on staff as counselors, but they'd come from a a different country. They were foreigners, Uh, they were immigrants, effectively. And so uh, many other individuals that were part of this program. The Chaldeans had uh, this distrust of the Magi that we mentioned last week. And clearly now they don't like these three Hebrew boys or Hebrew men as they are. Um, So they came here and they told us they accused the Jews. They brought this accusation against them. Uh, And again, they say to the king, live forever. (laughs) And notice, thou, O king, has made a decree. Now, it's interesting that they immediately go to this line of saying, the king, you've made this decree. And this is partly why I feel that just like we have in chapter six, the Chaldeans were behind this decree getting signed. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, as I said, may well have been the sole motivation for building this image and this statue in the first place and probably was. But to get this decree signed that everybody should bow down to it, I would suggest came from the Chaldeans. They planted this seed in the king's mind and the king thought, well, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do it. But not realizing that in doing so, he was going to trap his three best advisors in doing so. Then our king has made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Notice that they give the king the whole decree back. 
They don't just say, King, you've made a decree. Well, this is the problem. They say, this was the decree. And it was almost as if they had to underline what the king has said so that he's now got to follow through. And they say, there are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. So notice again that these individuals who were over the affairs of the province of Babylon, they were government officials at this point who the Chaldeans certainly didn't like. And notice now we have their Babylonian names given. Why? Because they're being referred to, Daniel recording this, but they're being referred to by the Babylonians, by the Chaldeans. So these three individuals, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, <laughs> as if to say, yeah, these ones, you know, just pointing the finger at them. You know, there's history here. They've caused problems for the Chaldeans in the past. We saw that in chapter two. And now they're being singled out and pointed out. O king, and notice what we're told here. Three things have not regarded thee. Okay, this is the charge is threefold. They say, King, they've not regarded you. They don't acknowledge your uh, supremacy over all things is effectively what they're saying. And notice the second thing. They serve not thy gods. Now, that's past tense. This isn't just today as they're standing on the plains of Jura about to uh, have this wonderful ceremony and so on. They're saying that these Hebrew men have in the past chosen not to serve the gods of Babylon. And then the third thing, of course, of course is nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And so they, again, they're not bowing down to the statue. So this is why when you look at verse 12, it seems to be premeditated on behalf of the Chaldeans. that They were trying to trap Hananiah, Azariah and Mishael by getting the king to sign this decree that they would put them in this position, knowing full well that they wouldn't bow down. Now, I think that's interesting in itself, because if the Chaldeans realized, it means that these men's witness must have been really quite powerful, that they knew, the Chaldeans knew what their response was going to be. In other words, these Hebrew men truly lived their profession of faith. They trusted God and people knew what their response was going to be even before the event. I pray that our lives are ambassadors for the king, just like these three uh, Hebrew men. Now, of course, this brings the whole question of kind of religious hatred and so on. Uh, it's a big kind of buzzword today in today's culture. But really, this was, uh, in essence, what this was going on at the time. Those who stand for truth are seen as an irritant to a society that wants to be free from moral constraints and it's not just uh, out in the big bad wide world it's something our children are facing on a almost daily basis now as they are being challenged regarding their morals and their faith and their beliefs and we need to keep praying for them you know but just as uh, the world would like us to be tolerant of their views and their positions and so on well, so they have to be tolerant of our views and our positions. Otherwise, it is indeed religious hatred. Uh, and uh, if they start playing the, you know, well, you have to accept us, say, well, fine, okay, but are you prepared to accept us? You know, that goes both ways. Uh, we should be respectful of all people. And Jesus certainly taught us to love our enemies, to love all people. We don't show aggression or hatred, but that doesn't mean that we're not entitled to have our views and our beliefs based upon God's word. Uh, we are all free agents to believe and choose what we want to believe in this world. Um, of course, we believe the sensible thing is to believe God's word. Jesus himself confirmed, of course, the reality, though. He said this, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. There doesn't have to be a rational basis for it, by the way. Jesus is making it very clear. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Uh, but because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you remember the word that i said unto you the servant is not greater than his lord if they have persecuted me they will also persecute you we should expect it if they have kept my sayings they will keep yours also but all these things they will do unto you for my name's sake because they know not him that sent me you see people have rejected god from their knowledge and their understanding and evolution of course is a big part of that and because they've rejected the knowledge of God, they go ahead and do whatever they want because they don't know God. They reject Jesus. If it had not, uh, if I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. Now, it's interesting. This is why people disdain Jesus so much. This is why Jesus's name is used in profanity, whereas you'll find the leaders of other religious groups, faiths, whatever, uh, are not used. 
Uh, in fact, there's an outcry if you use certain names. Of course, we know this well from uh, uh, news and history over the last uh, 10, 20 years. Um, but Jesus is saying, you know, that the, I have come, I've spoken to them and is exposed that they're sinful. Uh, but now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, then had they not sinned. Oh, sorry, then they had had not had sin, but now they have both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Paul reiterated this to Timothy as well. He said, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, the majority of the Christian church has suffered persecution for the majority of the last 1900 years. Um, but I'm sure you're aware that more have been martyred for Jesus Christ in the last 100 years or so than in the entire 18, 1900 years before that. Uh, the persecution of the church worldwide uh, is definitely increasing. But Jesus said we should expect it. You know, the world does not understand and they don't want to listen. They don't want to know because Jesus exposes sin. Anyway, these Hebrew men, same position, being persecuted for their trust and faith in God. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, why rage and fury? Well, was it because he realized he'd been played? You see, we're going to find in a minute that his countenance changes, his kind of face changes, that there's a change of heart. At this point, I don't necessarily think that the rage and the fury are entirely directed at Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. I think Nebuchadnezzar suddenly realizes that he's been trapped. That these advisors, these Chaldeans have set this thing up to get everybody to bow down, have done so knowing full well what Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, or Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael would do. So they command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said unto them, Now, first of all, notice this. Rather than just throw them in the furnace, they are called to give account by name. Now notice this, that the king doesn't just throw them in, but because I believe the king had a real fondness toward them, spoke and said to them, is it true? And notice he speaks them by name, O Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. He doesn't just you people, he knows them personally. They've been his advisors. He says, is it true that you do not serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, the interesting thing is, now, of course, Daniel's given us the record, but we're not given a response immediately by these three men. Nebuchadnezzar carries on as if to give them a way out. And he says, now, if you be ready. In other words, I think what he's saying is, this is what I'm asking you to do. And he's certainly giving them another chance. And now, if you be ready that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, sackbut, psaltery, the dulcimer of all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the image which I made them well. But if you worship not, you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? He asked the question, who is that God? Well, very soon he's going to discover but again, just interesting that he's giving them this option of, of getting out of this problem. And, and, and there must have been an element where they even for just a split second thought, well, should we just do this? You know, it's not a real God. Will it really matter? You know, if we bow down to this, we're not really worshipping it. We don't have to worship it in our hearts. Well, no, they didn't compromise. You know, the moment we start to try and rationalize, is this OK? Can I get away with this? We've already crossed the line. You know, they were very adamant right from the start. Their minds were made up. They were not going to worship. And even though they're given this opportunity, uh, they recognize that they're not going to be defiled. And the king asked the question, you know, who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Now, at the end of chapter two, he started to find out about that God and had been overwhelmed by that incredible God who could reveal the secrets of men's hearts. But now I believe he's just destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. As we said at the start, he's got no real fear of this God because he's already destroyed his temple. And so he's asked the question, who is that God that should deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, 
we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Now, let me just translate the King James there. The Aramaic word that's used is this word uh, kashak, uh, which means to have need of. So literally what they're saying is we don't need to answer you. We're not accountable to you, but to God. That is, in essence, what they say. Their response to the king is, you know, not they're not being rude. We're not going to answer you. But actually, we're not well, we are not answerable to you, O king. We're not accountable to you. We serve God. It also implies, again, that they weren't anxious about this situation. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there wasn't a a little bit of uh, butterflies in their stomach because they're thinking they might be thrown into the fiery furnace. But they still have this absolute confidence in God that the whole of their lives to this point, they've seen God engineer circumstances. They've seen Daniel be given that interpretation after they spent the four of them that night in prayer to seek the Lord. And God answered them. And not only they, but all the wise men of Babylon were delivered. They've seen God work. They trusted God. And now in this situation, this wasn't a, oh, what, what, what should we do? The decision had already been made you know where we talked a week or two ago that idea of purposing in your heart is deciding before the event what we are going to do really this just reminds me of acts 20 24 really pivotal scripture in the new testament paul says this but none of these things move me neither count i my life dear unto myself so that I may finish my course with joy and the ministry which I've received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Paul saying, you know, knowing that he's about to go to Jerusalem and quite likely to be arrested and imprisoned and possibly even killed, he says, it doesn't matter. You know, my life's not that important. What's important is I do the will of God, that I serve him, that I finish my course. You know, there's no point me finishing the race but crossing the wrong line. I want to cross the finish line and have the Lord waiting to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And of course, remind you of Daniel 1 verse 8. We've mentioned it a number of times that these men, along with Daniel, had already purposed in their hearts. They were not going to be defiled. Ron Matson, our previous pastor here at Portsmouth, uh, years ago made this comment. He said, purpose is something that comes through meditation. You have to think about what you're going to do if you face this circumstance or that circumstance and when you are prepared and the circumstance happens you react to that which you have meditated on so if you meditate on that which will not be helpful then when you are in that potentially compromising situation you will do that which you've meditated on it's an interesting line of of logic and thought to really saying that actually the things that you think about, the things you meditate, the, the, the scenarios you play out in your heart and mind, if that situation does occur, you're going to go with what you've already thought through, which is why we have to be so careful in regard to our thought life. And it's precisely why we're told in Romans 12, 1 and 2, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And in Philippians 4, 8, to think on these things. And you can read the list of the godly things we're to think on. And Colossians 3, verse 2, that we're to set our affection on the things above so that we meditate on godly things. And when in a crisis or a situation, we have already decided before we get there what our response is to be. Now, with all that, let's look at the response of these uh, Hebrew men. And this is a verse that you should take great comfort and encouragement in. It really is a sublime declaration of faith. They say, if it be so, our God, in other words, if it be that we're going to be thrown into this fiery furnace, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. What a statement of faith. They have no doubt that God is in charge and in control and he will deliver them. But I want you to make note of these next three words. But if not, just apply that to your own situation. You know, we know that God is in control, that God can deliver you, that God can heal our loved ones, that God can do all sorts of incredible miracles. But if not, you see, they don't say, but if God doesn't do it, well, maybe our God's not the real God. They simply make this statement. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. In other words, we will not 
compromise. And I love that. I think it's such a, a, a challenge to us, but also a great word of encouragement that, you know, God really is in control and he is able to deliver us and completely save us regardless of the situation, the circumstances. But if not, it doesn't change who God is. Reminded of that statement of Job in Job 13, 15, where Job makes, and I think probably the greatest utterance of faith in the Bible. He says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And I think these two verses, verse 18 of Daniel chapter 3 and Job 13, 15, uh, stand on a par really with each other. Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even if God ends my life, if God kills me, I'll trust him. Why? Because God is good and God does good. End of. There is no debate. God never does something that is not good. God will never abandon us. God will never leave us. God will never allow the rock upon which we stand to crumble. We were reminded in our verse for the week this morning that we wait patiently for him. But God will always come through. And this is why whatever the situation, whatever the circumstance, however black, bleak, difficult it seems, we know that God is in control. Again, if it so be our God who we serve is able to deliver us from this burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of the hand of the king. But if not, doesn't matter. We still trust God. <clears throat> now, in scripture, those who have made great professions of faith have often have had that profession tested to breaking point. You know, we see many occasions in scripture where individuals who trusted God were put through a furnace of fire, effectively, literally in this case, um, but others in various ways. You know, but God always uses these to bring about what he was doing, not just in the broader picture, but in the individual lives concerned. You know, it's been said before that it's the heating up and subsequent hammering of steel that gives it its strength. Oh, and we know we don't like suffering, but we all know how we gain strength through the experiences and the challenges and the difficulties we go through and how so often God uses those things in other people's lives. <clears throat> Psalm 118 verses 4 to 9 says, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. And Jesus, of course, said, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's the bigger picture. This is about eternity. You know, just think of the situation with Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus who had died. Jesus speaks to them, encourages them um, when he gets there. You know, Jesus could have arrived before Lazarus had died, but he chose to leave it till Lazarus had died, not just so he could raise Lazarus from the dead, but so that Mary and Martha would believe in Jesus. And so actually there's a greater miracle there than the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It's the eternal salvation of Mary and Martha on account of that situation that they realize and put their trust in Jesus Christ. You know, and sometimes the Lord allows things that we don't fully understand, but he's always doing that, which is good. This phrase, uh, but if not, uh, in the Second World War, uh, when the British army and the Allied forces have been pushed back by the German army to the beaches of Dunkirk in France, uh, and they were being trapped by the English Channel on one side and the approaching German army on the other, they sent a simple three-word message back home, and that, those were these words, but if not. Immediately it was recognised as being a quote from the book of Daniel, and it was understood to mean that the trapped British troops would wait to be saved, but if not, they would die fighting and standing up for their cause. And of course, that then led to the famous Dunkirk evacuations, where hundreds of military and merchant and private fishing boats all set sail, uh, many from here from Portsmouth, uh, across the Channel and dramatically rescued in the region of 350,000 British and Allied soldiers. Uh, it's been said today that if such a, such a message was sent, the soldiers will perish, as no one knows what the Bible says anymore. Uh, it's a sad statement of truth, but it's incredible, isn't it? How, you know, something like that, those simple words of the Bible can convey such meaning. And I pray this morning that those three words, but if not, you know, whatever you're going through, God is able to deliver. But if not, verse 19, then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury. And this is the point and the form 
of his visage was changed. So although initially we're told he was full of fury, he was cross, I think that's because he realized he'd been played. But now he's been defied openly, publicly, in front of all of his invited guests, some 300,000 people potentially, by these three Hebrew men. Uh, his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. That means that prior to this, his visage hadn't been changed toward them. So again, just underlining that point. Therefore, he spoke and commanded that they should heat the furnace uh, one uh, seven times more than it was wont to be heated. Now, I think this is quite interesting. Nebuchadnezzar clearly is very, very cross at this point. You know, he's been publicly humiliated by three of his top officials and all eyes are on him to see what he's going to do. I just think there's an interesting point here. And that's the power of peer pressure and expectation from other people. Now, we're going to find that Darius in chapter six, when he makes a decree and Daniel's thrown into the lion's den, he's made this decree and he states that he can't go back and undo the decree because it was written in the laws of the Medes and Persians. That law superseded his own authority. Once the law was set, he couldn't change it himself. Nebuchadnezzar was not like that. Nebuchadnezzar was a king unlike other kings and he was completely autonomous he could have changed this law he could have immediately rescinded his decree and said no I'm not going to do it you're trying to trap these men but all the eyes are looking on him and this was for him a pride issue now was he prepared to uh, let people see him give in what was that going to do to his authority to his reign and so on but of course the other thing to mention here is the seven times now we will mention this briefly in closing but we find that furnace in scripture, I think 30 times or so it's used, always has reference to trials or tribulations. It's interesting that we've got an account here of a world leader setting up an image, causing other people to bow down to it, persecuting Jews. And we're told it's seven times. Now, of course, the, the book of Revelation details that there's going to be this tribulation that's coming. It will be seven years in duration. Uh, there's lots of parallels with these things. And he commanded the most mighty men. Notice these weren't just um, people standing around. These were the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats and their hosen and their hats and their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnish furnace uh, usually victims were stripped to humiliate them but there seems to be kind of like some haste here just get them in there throw them in there don't bother taking the clothes off and you know the, the everything their hats the turbans undergarments the whole lot left on they go in there wearing probably even their royal official robes that they would have been wearing at the time therefore because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceeding hot the flame of the fire slew those men that took up shadrach meshach and abednego and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And again, just gives an idea of how hot the furnace may have been. The furnaces that have been found, uh, that have been found in this region, uh, that you have an opening at the top uh, with a lid, uh, and you lift the lid, and then you can get or put things inside the furnace. And it would possibly seem to be that as these mighty men lift the lid on this furnace, the heat is so intense, it just gushes out. Uh, I'm sure some of you have experienced before where you've been cooking and you open the oven uh, and uh, all the heat rushes out. Uh, and sometimes it'd be quite breathtaking, uh, the heat. Well, that, there's nothing compared to this situation. Poor analogy, but you get the picture. Now, at this point, we know the story and we know what's going to happen. So we're kind of expectingly awaiting the victory. But of course, for Hananiah, Azariah and Mishael, they didn't know what was going to happen. They've already stated that God can and will deliver them. But if not, but, you know, they didn't know exactly what was going to happen. You know, what right do we have to question God's judgment? You see, this is a God who knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. God is infinite in knowledge and understanding. And we're so limited and so finite, you know, and there's a number of scriptures. Paul in the book of Romans speaks about the potter and the clay and so on. We need to learn to trust God, regardless of what things may seem like. In James 1, 2 through 4, a verse, verse we know, uh, a couple of verses we know very well. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into the diverse temptations. How can James say that? Well, because of accounts like this one for a start, knowing this, that the trying of your faith, Worketh patience, 
But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. You see, it's beautiful to know that God wants to make us perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You know, uh, and he has to sometimes knock off the rough edges here and there. Uh, But he's doing it out of love and compassion as a loving father to mold us and make us into what he wants us to be. Now, yes, these things can be painful at the time we go through them. But as I said, you know, consider that situation with Mary and Martha and with Lazarus. You know, again, Jesus could have done, uh, you know, he could have arrived earlier, stopped Lazarus from dying. Um, but it wasn't just about that miracle, but it was so that they themselves would believe. And that infinitely greater gift than seeing their brother raised from the dead was their own salvation. Verse 24, then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonied. <laughs> the word in the uh, King James astonied in the Aramaic, which is his, this portion is written in Aramaic, uh, is tiva. Uh, and it just conveys, conveys the idea of sweeping to ruin. Come to that in a second. Um, but he said, he was astonished and rose up in haste and spoke and said to his counsellors, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said unto the king, true, O king. He answered and said, lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the son of God. So once again, this uh, expression, the son of God's here. Um, you know, <laughs> this is, an interesting statement because the Aramaic word is the equivalent in Hebrew to Elohim, which is the plural of gods. Uh, it's not the same though as Bar Elohim or the sons of God, which is usually translated angels. Uh, it's uh, seen to be an Old Testament appearance here of Jesus Christ. This is the second person of the Trinity that appears there, appearing as one of the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, commentators and scholars refer to this in the Old Testament as a Christophany. as a fancy word they use to simply speak about an Old Testament appearance of the second person of the Trinity whom we call Jesus Christ. There's an example in Joshua chapter 5 in Judges and various other places uh, we see these kind of things. You know, so uh, again, just going back to that previous verse, uh, the king was absolutely beside himself. You know, it, the rug was swept from under him. He was knocked sideways as he looks and sees this seemingly deity in their midst with them. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace. It's interesting that those he asks, you know, how many did we throw in? Nobody comes back with a, a, a rational explanation or solution to this. Um, but well, there, of course there wasn't any, but you know, they didn't, the Chaldeans didn't try and comment or everybody's going to be quiet, probably very concerned now at this moment. But Nebuchadnezzar came near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke and said, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, you servants of the most high God, come forth and come hither. Interestingly, he believes they're actually able to come out. Of course he couldn't go and get them because he was going to die from the heat. So he calls them to him. And then Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came forth of the midst of the fire. I just wonder for a second whether they wanted to wait a little bit longer. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael are standing there in the presence of God. God who had met them in the midst of their furnace. You know, sometimes we can't wait to be out of the furnace, but other times we realize that that's when we can be closest to the Lord. We shouldn't despise those times those we don't though we don't enjoy them they are times often where we can be so close to god <clears throat> all the people who of course had gathered on the plain in jura some potentially up to three thousand people as we said and they're now watching something completely different to that which they were expected to see and yet this of course was what god had actually gathered them all there to see nebuchadnezzar thought that they would kind of come and worship him god knew that they were going to come and worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Daniel, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael. <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar, again, thought that they uh, were gathered to worship him. God had a very different idea. It's interesting as well that other people may look at us in the midst of our time of tribulation and they see that we're not harmed by the flames. You know, and what a testimony, what a witness to other people that can be. Notice that only three come out of the furnace. Where is the fourth one? Where was the fourth person that Nebuchadnezzar could see? Well, some commentators have mentioned that he stays in there waiting for you 
so that you know that when you find yourself in the furnace, he'll be with you. Seemingly the Lord doesn't exit that furnace. Of course, we know that the Lord can come and go as he chooses, but the Lord was in the furnace. He will be in the furnace with you. Oswald Chambers makes this comment, speaking about Peter and that occasion when he walked him on the water. The wind was actually boisterous. The waves were actually high, but Peter did not see them at first. He did not reckon with them. He simply recognized his Lord and stepped out in recognition of him and walked on the water. Then he began to reckon with the actual things and down he went instantly. Why could not our Lord have enabled him to walk on the bottom of the waves as well as on the top of them? Neither could be done saving by recognition of the Lord Jesus. We step right out on God over some things. Then self-consideration enters in and down we go. If you are recognizing your Lord, you have no business with where he engineers your circumstances. The actual things are. But immediately you look at them, you are overwhelmed. You cannot recognize Jesus and the rebuke comes. Wherefore did thou doubt? Let actual circumstances be what they may. Keep recognizing Jesus. Maintain complete reliance on him. I love that quote. So the last few verses and the princes, governors and captains and the king's councillors being gathered together saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power. And I love this, nor was a hair of their head singed. God knows the number of hairs on our heads and even the hair was not singed. Neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. And that's incredible. I mean, if you have a fire, you, you immediately start smelling of, of the barbecue or the fire or whatever you're, you're doing. But even this, God supernaturally engineers. His deliverance is complete. And then Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now he's declaring this to this great company that have gathered there, who has sent his angel. See, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that this was a divine intervention and delivered his servants that trusted in him and has changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any God except their own God. Romans 12, 1 and 2 speaks about presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to him. Therefore, I make the decree that every people, nation and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Now, this is why, again, I just go back to where we started. I don't believe that, that, that this occurs before 587 BC because after this declaration I just think it would be really strange for Nebuchadnezzar to go up against Israel and to destroy the temple of God in Jerusalem I think he's been so overwhelmed by this that this had all taken place prior and that this was as we said at the start there was the trigger um, to, to lead into all of these things but Nebuchadnezzar is starting to understand it you see but he's still not quite got it he recognized that God can interpret dreams he now recognizes that God can deliver, but he still not understood that God is in complete control of all things. He will. And we'll see that in chapter four. You know, uh, being wowed by signs and wonders is not seeking the source. Sorry, and not seeking the source is a common mistake. Sadly, many in the church do that. They seek signs and wonders. There's all sorts of bizarre things going around and have been for many years and will carry on to be the same. But it's the seeking of the source that's the issue. And if people are not seeking the source, just like Nebuchadnezzar, well, they'll carry on in unbelief. They'll carry on in sin. They'll carry on in confusion and disappointment. So the final verse, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So what these Chaldeans, I believe, were trying to do completely backfired on them, just as it does in January chapter 6. And these individuals now, uh, these Hebrew men, are put in an even more authoritative position over the province of Babylon. Uh, God working in incredible ways. So just quickly before we close, where is Daniel? Well, did Daniel yield to the king's challenge? Did he bow down? No, definitely not. Was Daniel exempted from his accusations by his enemies? 
you know, well, the satanic intent behind this precludes this. They wanted to destroy these Hebrew men. So no, Daniel wouldn't have been uh, exempted. Uh, was Daniel out of the land on an errand for the king? Well, that's the most likely. Uh, Daniel looked after the whole realm for the king. So he may well be uh, that Daniel's absence had given rise to the Chaldeans seizing this moment to try to implicate his three friends in treason. So I would suspect that Daniel has been intentionally removed uh, by the Lord to allow this situation. But that leads on something very interesting. The Jews speak of a remes, or it's literally a hint of something deeper. As we said earlier, I think we have here an interesting model of the tribulation. You know, we've got a world leader setting up a statue to be worshipped by all and those who don't worship are going to be put to death. And of course, we have that seven times and we have the seven years of the tribulation. Of course, we find the Jews are persecuted, but incredibly supernaturally protected by God through this time, just as with the tribulation will be. Daniel, a friend of God, is absent from this scene. And Daniel seems to be a type of the church. We're also called God's friends who will be removed by the Holy Spirit so that we will not have to endure the tribulation. Some really encouraging thoughts to end with. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this time this morning, Lord. We just pray that not only will we purpose in our hearts not to be defiled, but Lord, those three words, but if not, will just lodge in our hearts and our minds and whatever circumstance we are facing. Lord, we know that you can deliver, that you can do incredible miracles beyond our understanding or even our comprehension. But Lord, if not, you are still God. You are still good. You are still on the throne and in control. So Lord, help us like Hananiah, Azariah and Mishael to trust you with our lives. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen.